Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, we speak to the American documentary maker, Ken Burns. But first, a quick mention that our First World War special issue is out now for iPad, Kindle Fire and Android tablet. You can download it via the History Today app. Now, here's Ken Burns talking about his new documentary, The Roosevelt's An Intimate History. Earlier this week, he spoke via telephone with our editor, Paul Lay. I just wondered, I suppose, the obvious question to ask is, is why the Roosevelt's? Because if, if you look at the other stuff you've done, the Civil War, jazz, there are these things on an enormous scale. Um, and there's a kind of intimacy, in a way, about the Roosevelt's, even though they're acting on a grand scale, uh, there's well, an intimacy you, there. You've, you've answered the question yourself. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, that here you have these players uh, strutting their hour upon this, this grand stage, and yet um, we don't know much about the intimate detail, and we really wanted to do something that has never been done before, which is unite all three. There's a lot on Theodore Roosevelt, both in book and film, and same with Franklin, and Franklin and Eleanor, and also Eleanor by herself, but to unite them all in the complicated family drama that it was seemed to us now, in retrospect, kind of obvious, but hadn't been undertaken. And to be able to see familiar events like the Second World War, the Depression, the First World War, other aspects of American and world history from the intimate side, from the other perspective, understanding also the way in which childhood adversity or adversity in life contributes to character, which in turn uh, suggests leadership style and, and influence on those world events, was hugely fascinating to us. And, and we're very much interested in that biographical perspective. And how did you go about it? I mean, it's, it's obviously a considerable work. I mean, you, you've done things as I say, on a grand scale before, but there seems to be an even greater challenge here in what you might call the macrocosm and the microcosm, keeping yes, those threads we've, together. Yes, we've done that in other films, uh, but not in this extended biography. We've done many biographies, uh, but they've all been, you know, two-part films. The, this is a, a huge biography uh, spanning, as you know, seven parts and 
14 hours. And uh, it was a complicated interbreeding of narratives, both large and small. Uh, not only This is not only, of course, as you know, about Theodore Franklin and Eleanor, but about, uh, you know, the many, many relatives surrounding them, but all, more importantly, the United States and its history from 1858 to 1962. These are very complicated calibrations in order to get just the right amount, which is why this took more than six years to complete. I think by the time it's broadcast, it will be seven years from the, the moment where I looked at Jeffrey Ward, Jeffrey with a G, my longtime collaborator, and himself a noted historian of Franklin Roosevelt's early life, uh, and said, let's do this. And let's not just do Franklin, let's do Theodore Franklin and Eleanor. And he was equally interested in uniting the three. Yeah, and I, th I think that's what makes it so fascinating, because what you get there is this tremendous contrast between this very energetic, tactile, physical figure of Theodore, who's still rooted to a certain extent in that, or it's, at least it seems to me, in that frontier America making things up as they go along, in a way, of being almost a pioneer. And then that transition to FDR yes. and Eleanor, which is a much more obviously modern world that's there. And, it, and it's interesting the way that that transition is made and the way they're part of that story, I think. I, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's, it's exactly that. I mean, they're all born in Manhattan, so they're all Easterners. But, of course, to remake his body and to repair... Uh, the grief of losing his mother and his wife uh, on the same day in the same house on February 14th. Uh, he, of course, fled west and became, as he put it, every much as much a westerner as I am an easterner. Uh, this became very much part of what his enormous appeal as a president was. But it, you, we have to see it now always from the perspective of someone who was a depressive, someone who felt only through motion, only by trying to outrun his demons could he survive. And so he and Eleanor, from the same branch of the family, whose own father burned out and died quite early from alcoholism and insanity, always were in perpetual motion. And this is an incredibly interesting pathology for any two human beings, but of this extraordinary caliber. And in comparison to Franklin, who, because of infantile paralysis, can't outrun anything, including his demons, becomes the more effective of the presidents and someone who spent his entire early life trying to sort of um, mirror exactly what his more famous fifth cousin had done, his sort of hitting all the marks, all the stations of the cross that, that Theodore had passed through, whether it was uh, participation in the New York legislature, assistant secretary of the Navy, governor of the state of New York, and then president. Franklin hit them all and then exceeded uh, the extraordinary accomplishments of, of Theodore. Theodore is bellicose, thinks war is a good thing, you know, is proud of the fact that his regiment in the Spanish-American War suffered the most casualties, was disappointed he didn't have a disfiguring wound, pushed his own sons as close to war in the First World War as possible, and then to combat and with tragic, unspeakable consequences. Uh, Franklin's a different sort of animal, certainly engineered the United States' emergence on the international scene uh, when it was reluctant to do so uh, in the Second World War, uh, but was not the kind of bellicose uh, figure uh, that uh, Theodore was. And Eleanor had a kind of combination of both when young Quentin, her cousin, um, 
was killed uh, in World War II, the youngest child of Theodore Roosevelt. She says, well, very good, two, two, two bullets to the head, and it is a glorious way to die. That's, that's, a, that's a TR mm. statement, not a Franklin statement. No, and Eleanor has that in her blood. I mean, it's an endlessly fascinating story. And you can say, as we do, uh, without reservation, that no other American family has touched as many Americans as the Roosevelt. And yet there's not quite as much myth about the dynasty here as there is in, in obviously, the Well, Kennedys, I think this I is the, one of the great, you know, foibles of our media uh, culture that we live in, uh, the information age that, you know, provides an avalanche of information that we're supposed to digest every single day. And what we retreat to is the safety of kind of conventional wisdom in quotes, about people. And, and they're not. They're, they're conventional, to be sure, but they're not wisdom, and they're extraordinarily superficial, and they tend to just be interested in celebrity for its own stake, for dynasties, for their own uh, pedigree, and not for the substance of the lives lived or the, the complicated contradictions that, of course, each one of us has. And I think, the, to me, the great value of this work right now is that... Certainly, they remain the bold-faced names, the American royalty, if you will, but they seem very familiar. They have divorces, they have betrayals, they have deaths and illnesses and are susceptible to alcoholism and depression, and they have good moments and bad moments within their own lives and within their families. These are all things that everyone is familiar with, and I think it's the great obligation uh, of any kind of biography of so-called great people to give them back the humanness that our conventional wisdom has stolen from them. It's interesting too, I, I think, in a, in, a, in a world where social media often reduces everything we do to a few words or a few you know, 140 letters on Twitter and everything, that here we have something that is tremendously long, tremendously detailed, yes. which can breathe out, which can expand and can reveal those complexities to which so much of the media is, is, is heading in the opposite direction. In that exactly. I mean, God bless you, uh, Paul, for saying that. You know, this is uh, all meaning, all meaning for everyone, even people wedded to 140 characters of Twitter. All meaning accrues in duration. The work you're proudest of, the relationships you care the most about, have benefited from your sustained emphasis on sustained attention. And yes, we are distracted in our social media lives in a way that is, is, is utterly destructive. And so we return, you know, are the kids for whom we'd thrown up our arms that they're only interested in television and video games flock to buy Harry Potter books. My young nine-year-old daughter has just finished all seven volumes. She is a transformed human being. The, the iPad was set aside. The iPhone was set aside. The TV time was, was not taken. Uh, she instead spent hours upon hours finding that meaning in duration. And uh, God bless that. And I think we, we now find even our media habits are beginning to reflect that. We talk and celebrate binge-watching. I don't know if it's you guys talk about it, that you'll digest an entire 
season of our own American version of House of Cards in, in a couple of days or in other series that we've done. And this is an attempt by the human being to reestablish their control over that avalanche of disparate and disconnected bits of information and try to find a more unified, a more significant and meaningful whole. And that's what I've tried all my life and my work to do, and which I've been told at on nearly every juncture, except now that I've been vindicated, that this was too long, nobody will watch the Civil War, nobody will watch baseball, nobody will watch jazz, nobody will watch this, because they're all distracted by MTV or, or all the cable stuff or, you know, whatever it is. And it's never been true. How much do you think of yourself as not just a documentary maker, but a historian? You know, I, I'm first and foremost a filmmaker. That's how I'm trained. Um, I'm inter And what filmmakers are, like artists and photographers and magazine writers, um, they're storytellers. And the word history is mostly made up of the word story and then hi or hello. And that's what I've done all my life. But I, I think at best I'm an amateur historian. The United States has a wonderful tradition of amateur historians. Uh, that have you know disconnected themselves from the academy, though I am intricately linked with the academy, the academic academy, because of uh, of, of the historians that advise us. But but this is popular history, and I I don't try to pretend that it it has any of the pretensions or the depth of of scholarly history. But I do know that it, that it it carries a lot farther, and it has effect. And pictures are worth a thousand words, and. Uh, Music and picture and voice and narration and sound effect combine and can sometimes provide us with that improbable calculus of one and one, not just equaling two, but every once in a while equaling three, which is, of course, the great goal of art and perhaps the great goal of life. Indeed. Um, um, a British politician, Enoch Powell, I think it was, said about uh, Joseph Chamberlain, a great imperial politician, mm -hmm. That all political lives end in failure. Yes. All political careers end in failure. Yes. Um, and there is something tragic at the end of when we see the end of the lives of Theodore and Franklin, that for all their achievements, there is something unfulfilled, and particularly to a certain extent, in contrast with Eleanor. In many ways, Eleanor seems the one that completes her life more than the others. She, she lives longer. Is, She's still, though, like Theodore, trying to outrun her demons at the end. And mm. Essentially, she dies when she is physically unable to continue in the perpetual motion that her uncle had sort of pioneered. I think you're bringing up a much larger question, which mm. is the human dilemma. None of us get out of this alive. <laughs> And we spend a great deal of our time distracting ourselves from the inevitable truth that we are all mortal. We are all going to die. There is not going to be an exception in our case. And so just as the person closest to us remains inscrutable to the end, so too all biography, all history is failure because it fails to get at all of the things we want to know. And all life is a failure because there is no one that does not wish it to go on and to do more. And there, that, I think, is the central rub. This is the, you know, the existential question of all existential questions. And, and, you know, all of us tell stories in large part to keep the wolf from the door, but also, I think, in its most sophisticated and elegant practices 
uh, to remind us honestly of that inevitable mortality, which we, uh, you know, spend way too much of our time trying to gainsay. As mm, time's running out, I've got one last question. I think one of the most fascinating uh, points of view from a British perspective, when watching this and when observing American politics, is the growth of the dynastic element. In many ways, the Roosevelts are the first of the great American political dynasties. There's yes. been many more. It looks like there'll be more. Uh, if we think about the Clintons, we've had the Bushes, we've had the Kennedys. Yes, um, and we had the Adamses and the Harrisons yeah. before that. But yes, these are the most significant um, dynasty that we have had in the United States. And yet it ends uh, in Franklin's death. Eleanor does continue, but there are no Roosevelts on the horizon. And this runs both counter to and very humanly uh, along with, you know, our traditions. We're not supposed to be that. We separated from you because we didn't want the continuity of royalty, the same family doing it, and yet we trust people once we get to know them. And this is the great uh, complexity of how you run a modern democracy. And I, I've just been given the signal that my next call is in, and I hope that I am not leaving you too quickly. No, not at all. I'd, I'd obviously like to speak more. But thank you very much, Ken. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. And, it's my uh, pleasure, Paul. Very, very uh, intelligent questions. I'm very grateful for thank that. You. Thank you. Thank you. I Take enjoyed care. it bye enormously. Bye-bye.